0: Um, Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 29. That's kind of where we're going to be camping for a bit. Um, So when I was in the fifth grade, um, I was actually pretty good friends with my bus driver. And one day towards the end of the school year, I was the last one on the bus because I would actually ride up around the ridge and let him drop all the kids off and then like come back around and drop me off. And I'd just stand up there. Uh, totally illegally on the steps and just, like, talk to Keith Roth. So we got out to the end of the ridge uh, one day towards the end of the, the, the school year, and he just looks at me and says, hey, do you want to drive the bus? And so I was like, yes, <laughs> with a great amount of enthusiasm. Um, and so I'm thinking, like, okay, well, like, maybe it's going to be weird. He's going to have me sit on his lap, and I'll drive it. Um, but I'm in the fifth grade, so I don't know any of the dangers of any of this, so let's just let's roll. He gets... Uh, towards the end, turns around, puts it in park, gets up out of the seat, and says, okay. So, I mean, I've been driving since I was eight, because I grew up on a farm, and I kind of needed to do that to help my dad. And I jump up there, uh, put it in drive, and take off in a full-size school bus. And um, this was maybe one of the most, like, glorious and marvelous events of my, like, young life. Um, But then kind of what I realized is, Towards you know adulthood, I'd been driving so much that something that was so glorious and marvelous had actually become quite normal and dull to me. And that's really what we see happening here in the book of Exodus. Right? We, we see these very high moments of God's glory and marvel, and yet throughout the book of Exodus we have these moments of, of what seems to be on the part of Israel just normalcy, and dullness to the glory, and majesty, and sovereignty of God, right? And so the danger that we have is that we can become so enamored with the glory of something that we realize that we have become so redundant in that thing, but it's, it's, it's actually just a very normal, dull thing to us, and it's not marvelous and magnificent to us anymore, and so in the book of Exodus, we see, just to recap to where we are, we, we see really chapters uh, 1 through 18 are actually just the story of God choosing a people and then delivering them from their 400 years of captivity in Egypt and taking them through the Red Sea uh, by way of plagues on the Egyptian people and then taking them to Sinai and continuing his work that he started in the book of Genesis with Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to make a great people out of you and you will, bless, you will be blessed and bless the nations. And so this is where we pick up in, in Exodus 19 with God's promise being renewed and reminded and given through the people of Israel. So that's all good and well. They're very excited about this. It's a, it's a great thing and they're all on board. Um, but then... Chapters 20 and 21, 22, 23, and 24 happen, and we see that they're given the law, um, and it's a good thing, right? And they're still they're still pretty much on, on board, right? The Ten Commandments are given there in chapter 20, um, chapters 21, 22, 23, or laws about particular things such as treating slaves. Uh, the the covenant is reconfirmed in chapter 24. And then chapters 25 through 31 introduce us to the tabernacle. But we have in chapters 32 through 34 Moses coming off of Mount Sinai with this glorious covenant renewal and this this law to live as God's people. And there they are with a golden calf. And then we go into chapters um, 35 through 40, and we see the tabernacle again. So tonight what we're going to look at is chapters 25 to 31, and what's there is God's instruction upon, about building a dwelling place, a tabernacle for himself to dwell amongst his people. And then in chapters 35 through 40, it's the construction of that. Right? So to give you a broad overview of Exodus, I kind of see it like this. Right? This, is, this, is a, this is a definition of the whole forest. Right, This is Exodus in a sentence. What we see is that Exodus moves from the captivity of an enslaved people to a people chosen and delivered from slavery by their covenant God to a people who are struggling in sin and unable to remain faithful to the God that has just made covenant with them. Right, and really, so we've come from slavery to now being really our own worst enemy because of our sin before a righteous and holy God. And so Exodus, I think, closes, the book closes with showing us how a fallen sinful people are to dwell in the presence of the glory of the Lord. Right, And so the tabernacle reveals to us how a holy and righteous and perfect God is going to dwell and live amongst a sinful and utterly imperfect people. So here's a question though, right? We have all of these in, you can look in chapter um, 25 if you want. We have all of these things, the Ark of the Covenant, the table for bread, the golden lampstand, the tabernacle, the bronze altar, the court, the altar of incense, all of these things in chapters 25 through 30 are instructions on things to build, right? I want the tabernacle to look just like this. But here's the question, what do all of these intricate things, what are we supposed to see in all of these perfect dimensions and everything being made just right and as it should be and everything lined up and aligned as it should be, the rooms being partitioned where they should be? What are we supposed to get from all of this? Because there is a lot there. But if we're just looking at it and wondering what is the tabernacle I'll give you this definition. This is what I think is a a good definition. That God intently provides a way for his people to safely dwell with him. That God is intentionally and intently providing a way for his people that he has chosen to dwell with himself. So how are they going to do that? Well, one way is they're going to function under the law. Right? They're going to be a people that have the Old Testament law, and they're going to love the Lord their God, and they're going to love other people. They're going, to, they're going to not do some things, and then they're going to do other things that they're commanded to do. Right and here in the tabernacle, they're going to provide certain sacrifices that they're supposed to provide, and they're going to withhold or withstand from other things that they shouldn't be involved in. Right? This is, the, the tabernacle is about the people of God, the covenant people of God, learning how to be in community with God, to live in the midst of a holy and righteous God's glory. Where was the last time that that happened? The Garden of Eden. The last time that a people have dwelt and been in community, in intimate community with their God was in the Garden of Eden. Right, and so the tabernacle, what it's doing is it's, it's kind of a, almost a redeeming factor of the way God intended things to be. Right, God didn't just create things to blow up. He created people for himself to worship him and to work the land and to be husband and wife and have children all for his glory. And not only for his glory, but to live in his glory, to dwell with it, to have intimate relationship with him. And the garden blows all of that up. And so the tabernacle is not just a thing full of intricate, perfect numbers and stuff lined up in just the right place. It's God in time showing us how he redeems all things to himself, even despite a sinful, imperfect humanity blowing it up. So I think the tabernacle really kind of, what what I want to do is I want to look at the pragmatic value of the tabernacle for us. the practical implications of the tabernacle. Because here's the thing, what I want to do right now that I don't have enough time to do is I want to go through and show you how all of this stuff lines up everywhere in Scripture, and I want to basically just read you a paper and for you to say, that's amazing, that won't happen. So I want to be practical. Right? I want us to look at something that seems so far removed and out in the distance from us and how that actually has great value and leads us to understand God more fully. Not just the Old Testament God and how he relates to Israelites, but how this is a picture of how God relates to his covenant people in all time. And so I think it teaches us two things. The first thing is this, how to dwell in the presence of a glorious God. The tabernacle teaches us how to dwell in the presence of the glory of God. So look at chapter 29. Chapter 29, verses 38 through 46. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar, two lambs a year old day by day regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb a tenth measure of fine flour mingled with a fourth of a hen of beaten oil and a fourth of a hen of wine for a drink offering the other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and shall offer with it a grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning for a pleasing aroma of food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with you With the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So here I think we get a glimpse of how we are to dwell in the presence of a glorious God. And here in in these these uh, passages, I think that what is actually happening is we're getting a bit of a look into how God's people are to actually live in His glory. So we learn this: entering the presence of the glory of the Lord is no small matter, right? I think that what we're seeing here, right. In the instruction of the priest, what we're seeing is that God is setting forth a pattern of repetition in consistency and obedience. God is setting forth a pattern of consistency and persevering obedience to his law. Right? The priests, what they're supposed to do is they're supposed to offer these sacrifices morning and evening, and not just these sacrifices, but sacrifices all throughout the year at different times and at different festivals and all kinds of things that you can learn in Leviticus if you dare, right? This repetition, right? The priests are to be consumed with the things of God, if the priests are going to be the ones that represent the people, right, if they're going to be the mediators between the holiness and the gloriness and the majesty of God and between him and a sinful people, then they've got to be about and consumed and perseverant in their worship. So I think what the, tabel, the, the tabernacle economy shows us is that God is, is majestic in glory. Right? The way he has created the tabernacle, the way he has given the priests to, to live and to function as priests, shows God's majestic glory. Right? This is, this is not something that is just flippant. But not only does it show the majestic glory of God, it also shows the crushing reality of man's sin. Right, this is is a place where the slaughtering of animals will happen often and regularly. Right, the the glory of the Lord and the sin of man is not just something that intermingles. Right, this is not just something that's okay. Right, it's not like we're just going to have a tabernacle. God's glory is going to be there and it's going to be great for us. Right? God is majestically glorious, but man's sin is also crushingly difficult. There's a dichotomy between the glory and perfect righteousness of God and the fallen, sinful nature of man. And that's what the tabernacle wants us to see. Right? Just just think about that for a moment. Right? This is a this is a this is a problem. But This is a problem that God has given us the means to overcome, right? Notice the language, the the, the language of consecration, purification, atonement, sanctification. That's the language that God uses as he's talking about this ministry of the priests, right? This is something that's actually going to present you before a holy God in a way that you will not be annihilated, So what, what does this teach us about ourselves? Right? What does this say about a perfect and holy God and the New Testament believer? I think that the tabernacle, what we need to see in this repetition and this persevering obedience is this, that there is no such thing as a passive participant in the glory of God. There is no such thing as a passive participant in the glory of God. Right? We don't just have casual observers, right? We we talked about Eden and the, the community they had with God and how they dwelt in His glory. Understand That that a casual, laissez-faire view of the glory of God ends up leading you to a place where the glory of God is not the most marvelous thing, but it becomes a quite normal thing, and the next thing you know that what is really glorious to you is what you could receive, and then you begin to look at what you could have apart from God, and all of a sudden you are so idolatrous that you do exactly what it is that God has asked you not to do. Right, and sin is so... disconnected from the character of God that what happens when Adam and Eve do this is that they are literally ejected out of the presence of the glory of God. Right? There's no such thing as a passive participant. Think about it. What what are ways maybe that you have fallen into the idea that you can just have casual worship or casual Christianity And that somehow your casual laissez-faire attitude to the glorious things of God and His Word and the preaching of it and the serving in His church and His bride, what is it that that has become so dull and normal to you? Listen, the danger is that we can give ourselves so much to other things. We can see glory in so many other realms that what we do is we think that our casual attendance or our our casual glancing at the Scripture a few times a year in our, our chair at home or we end up thinking that those casual things are enough. And I think that the tabernacle doesn't give us a casual view of God's glory and how we're to function in it. It is a consistent obedience, and it's a persevering obedience. So here's the thing. In Christ, we've not just been freed from our sin. Right? We've not just been freed. It's not like we've come, we've heard the gospel, hallelujah, we're free, let's go. We haven't just been freed from our sin. We've been liberated to reflect his character and to share his grace and to usher people into the presence of the glory of God. Right? Look at Exodus chapter 19, verses uh, 5 and 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Right? A part of God's covenant relationship with his people is that they would not only serve him at the tabernacle, but that they would represent and shine forth his glory in the world to everyone who's looking. Listen, whenever we have a casual view of God's glory and obedience is just something that maybe we do every now and again, we're not really going to be concerned and about the glory of God shining forth to the nations into a hurting and dark world. So as we look at the tabernacle, we, we see a beautiful picture of God's grace and His mercy. Look at Exodus chapter 29, verses 45 and 46 again. Let me reread that. I will dwell among the people of Israel, and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Right, the tabernacle is not just about following law. It's not just about offering the sacrifices the way the Lord wants. Right? This is, a, this is a, I want to be your God and I want you to be my people. I don't want this just to be the thing you do. I want this to be the very heart of who you are. Hmm. But here's the problem. We see over and over again with the nation of Israel. That the perfect requirement for perfect obedience is an unbearable yoke for them. And so often their sin overtakes them. And so we're left, as a reader of the Bible, hoping that there's something more than this. Because we realize that the tabernacle and the law is not bad for them. Right? God would not give them something that's going to overtake them and destroy them. But we're left saying, God, we need you. God, we need you to do something more than this. We can't do this on our own. Right? The tabernacle is as much about the glory of God as it is about revealing the sinfulness of his people. And so we learn our second thing. The tabernacle teaches us how to move from hope to astonishment. Look at chapter 40. So remember in verses 25 through 31, we have the tabernacle instructions, the blueprint for how to do it, and then in verses 35 through 40, we have the construction. All of the things are built by by a man named Aholiab and... uh, Bezalel. You know. All of the stuff is built. And then when there's a, there's, a, there's a part in there about the Sabbath, which I could get real nerdy and theological on, I'm not going to do that. But this is a very serious matter. There's a lot happening here. But we still are left wondering how in the world Is this going to be the way that we're going to live forever? Repetition and repetition and repetition and repetition and repetition. And a require of perfect obedience to the will of God and His law. How? Look at chapter 40, verses 34 through 38. So it's all built... At one point here, if you have read it, you saw that at one point, like Moses literally writes, and, and they gave, we gave it to them, and behold, they did it, <laughs> right? Like they actually did it. Starting in verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So the tabernacle, I think, teaches us how to dwell in the presence of the glory of God. But it also teaches us how to move from hope to astonishment. Right? Here's, here's the thing. Exodus ends by Moses writing it in a way that takes our focus off of him it causes us as we're reading right we're 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 reading it and then we get to our man Moses who right is a is a as as robert has told us a, a type or a picture or a foreshadow of jesus he's this great man that god has chosen to mediate the covenant and yet he can't enter in the glory of the lord anymore and so I think that it's written in a way that we are forced to ask when we get to verse 35, if Moses can't do it, then who can do this for us? Right? A bunch of punk priests, right? Moses is our guy. He's the guy in the beginning with the burning bush and the glory there. He's the guy up on the mountain. And you're telling me that we've come this far, and they've finally been faithful and built the tabernacle as it was prescribed, and yet at the end, the glory descends, and Moses says, I can't go in. So this kind of seems like a dilemma, and this certainly probably would have been a dilemma for the people of Israel. Like, Moses, wait, Moses, like, what? You're, are you done? But here's the thing, we're not supposed to see Moses as our hope. I think this is one of those moments in scripture where all of a sudden you're reading through, you read it through a couple of times, and then you're slapped. Over and over again, the people of Israel are in the wilderness, wherever they are, and all of a sudden we have this moment of, Why did you bring us up? And Moses says, It wasn't me. I never brought you out of Egypt. I never promised you deliverance. It has always been God. And so we get here and we think, oh, no. And Moses is saying, oh, yes. Don't look at me for your hope. Are you getting it? Israel, are you understanding Moses wants us to look somewhere else. Look at, look at Deuteronomy, chapter 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Moses is setting us up in the book of Exodus to understand the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers. He's setting us up to look at the prophets. He's setting us up to meet John the Baptist, right? And he's setting us up to finally realize that the prophet we've been looking for is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Don't look at me. I can't enter into the glory anymore. So, how do these chapters serve the New Testament believer, right? How are we to walk away from the book of Exodus? How are we to look at this specifically with the tabernacle instructions? How are we supposed to be here and exalt Christ? Well, it's not that hard, right? But if we're not intentional about it, we can kind of just give a few little comments like, yeah, Jesus is a priest, yeah, it's awesome, like... Right, Moses is very explicit in what he's doing. When you're reading and you're like, oh. Here's what's happening. We must see where all of this is pointing to. Look at, look at, look at Acts chapter 3, verses 18 through 23. We must see where all of this, this whole book of Exodus is pointing us to. Where are we supposed to read through the book of Exodus, and where is our gaze supposed to land? Where is our hope to do what Israel could not do in the tabernacle? Where is our hope to live under the law of God when Israel failed time and time and time again? Acts chapter 3, verses 18 through 23. starting in verse 18. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he is thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. What Exodus does is it reminds us that God has always been intent on dwelling with his people and providing a way for them to dwell with him in his glory and majesty. What we see in Christ is that the yoke of the law, the yoke of the tabernacle system, the economy of sacrifice, has been in Christ demolished Our sin has not only simply been atoned for, it has been blotted out. It has been blotted out, and what we have been given is not a repetitious sacrificial system, but we have been put forth on a path of consistent obedience in a time of refreshment, freed from our sin and the worry of death. So look to Matthew 27, verses 45 through 51. Think that that this this is all where Exodus is pointing us to. Matthew 27, verse 45 through 51. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The curtain he's talking about here is between the the, whole, the holy, the most holy of holies, where the ark of the covenant and the glory of God descends upon in the outer court. And when Christ gives himself up as a sacrifice, the curtain is split. And the glory of God is open and accessible to all who would come through Christ. It's only possible to dwell in the presence of the glory of God in Christ. The one who not only gives us access but delivers us into God's glory. So we see that Jesus is. He is a high priest that mediates a better covenant, right? doesn't just bring us closer to God. It's, It's the law that he has fulfilled. Not only has the law been fulfilled in him, it has been written on our hearts, right? The law is not a bad thing. It was just a teacher that taught us that our sin before a perfect and holy God couldn't coexist. And so God demolishes it and writes the heart and character of God on our hearts as believers, And he redeems us by his blood. He sacrifices himself for us. And he delivers us before God purified. And so let's end with Hebrews chapter 9, verses 24 through 28. For Christ has entered not only into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will offer a second time, will come a second time, not to deal with the sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Brothers and sisters, what the Book of Exodus is doing is it is causing us to see. The damage of the garden and God's goodness in choosing a people so undeserving and not leaving them in a, in a system of burdens, but delivering and giving the perfect sacrifice that He requires. A sacrifice that we didn't have to give and that was given for those who believe on their behalf for free. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is not hard to see Christ in Scripture. God, we see that Scripture, old and new, is about the exaltation of Christ, that all things are fulfilled and redeemed in him. All we have to do is look at the shortcomings and the weaknesses and the failures of the men in Scripture, and it's there that we find Christ. Because like Paul says, In our weakness, we are strong. God, Christ is the fulfillment and the reconciliation and the redemption of all things. God, even our sin points us to the grace and mercy of God. God, our sin drives us to see God's mercy and grace in our lives when we we, we are so undeserving of it. We pray that we would be consistent in our obedience, that we wouldn't view Christianity as something that's casual or the worship of God as something that can casually be partaken in, but something that we are committed and resolute to be about all the days of our life. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.